Hello, my friends. I would like to welcome you to the very first ever Kokoro Movement podcast. This is a project that has been a long time coming, and I am very grateful that I finally have the editing software to produce the podcast as I envision it. And when I say a long time coming, I did this interview more towards the beginning of 2017 than the end, but now here we are. It's January 2018, and the time for the Kokoro Movement podcast has come. My very first guest is a chiropractor, the owner of an incredible facility in Littleton, Colorado called Project Move, and the medical director for Rock Tape. We had a really fun conversation, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And without further ado, I would like to introduce to you Steve Capobianco. such right up uh, so tell us about yourself give us a little bit of a background on you and how you've gotten to where you're at now yeah it, it's um, I've been in practice I'm a practicing chiropractor uh, graduated in 2003 um, but that's not exactly how I practice any longer as as a chiropractor I think a chiropractic profession allows for a pretty wide scope of practice, and that's why I, w- I resonated with it uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, was that it allowed me to pull from my previous education, and that would be uh, a bachelor's in kinesiology and exercise science, uh, and then a master's in adapted kinesiology. And adapted kinesiology is uh, a program that involves uh, movement re-education for um, the compromised community, and that that could be neurological comprom- uh, compromised through neurological diseases like cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, uh, as well as other forms of neurological trauma like spine conditions, post-stroke victims. Uh, so, I, the chiropractic profession, uh, from what I saw of it, allowed me to pull my experience uh, as well as education from other movement-based programs to allow me to better uh, affect the patients that I was working with. So uh, what I am is hard to define now because I don't think it's just traditional chiropractic, which it's not. Um, I've kind of, I started the process of redefining what I am and, and really it came down to the uh, concept of a movement specialist, a clinical movement specialist, and in fact that's a term that I'm uh, putting some uh, parameters on to be able to develop a program uh, that I'm hoping to start uh, teaching others of this clinical movement special specialty uh, to pull in physical therapists, chiropractors, massage therapy, acupuncture, even even the, the strength and conditioning community to be able to pull them into a room and give them the uh, science as well as the art of how to improve someone's movement capacity. So if I had to define myself it would be a clinical movement specialist uh, where I take people that are unable to move due to pain or some form of dysfunction and get them to uh, improve or decrease their their pain and dysfunction through through movement. And that may be with my hands, and more times than not, it's, it's uh, accomplished by getting the person to feel more confident in their movement capacity. So that's what I am as a clinical movement specialist. Right on. I like that a lot. 
Let me know when you get those courses. I'll <laughs> those courses will in development. Let's say that. <laughs> right on. And then, so how did you get started initially? So, uh, initially, uh, I, I was always drawn towards human movement, if you if you can call it that. As an athlete, I would start off with that. And it's not an atypical story. Right. The athlete that uh, has some. Um, ability but not enough to be able to take it to the next level right. and uh, so I still wanted to be part of that community and so I was looking at what are the options that I could have as a career and what I wanted to be involved with was working with athletes, working with individuals that that aspired to move more and better and so I uh, started my education as a kinesiologist. Uh, I'm a Canadian born um, mm -hmm. uh, practitioner and I made the choice of going to uh, a kinesiology program in Toronto, Canada. Uh, loved that program, uh, left there with even more questions. So I continued on the path of kinesiology, but this time I wanted to work with those that were compromised. Um, and so I, I, started a, I, I started a program in the University of South Florida in Tampa, and that was working with kids with cerebral palsy and I was able to use movement as a tool to improve their capacity, which blew me away. That uh, those that, that presented with very poor movement patterns within a 45 to 60 minute session, I was able to improve their capacity to ambulate or walk, uh, to do normal activities of daily living, just with the, the tool of movement, nothing else. Uh, at that time, when I was doing my research with this cohort that I was working with, uh, there was a chiropractor that was doing some uh, supplementary work with the, the same study uh, group that I was working with, and he was adjusting upper cervical, so literally just moving C1, C2 according to what he told me, and within seconds, not even minutes, within seconds he was able to accomplish uh, what took me 30 to 45 minutes to to decrease the tone of these people that were neurologically compromised, presenting with like scissor gate patterns and uh, flexion uh, dominant patterns where they were in a flex posture or their extremities were restricted due to this flexion posture. Uh, he was able to accomplish relaxation of that tone just with an upper cervical adjustment. So I, I had been adjusted as, a, as an athlete. Uh, I played ice hockey and, uh, and lacrosse my, my whole life. And uh, he did something that I'd never experienced as an athlete. So I'd been adjusted, never had the aha moment. And so I was really curious. So I started to spend some time with him, inquire a lot about what his training was. And he told me that uh, his training was through the Palmer uh, chiropractic system. Uh, so I started doing some research. I found that there were two schools at the time, one in in Iowa and the other one in, um, in uh, California and so I chose w where I wanted to be and I moved out to San Jose, California and started a chiropractic degree program in 2000 and graduated in 2003. Right on. And then um, let's talk to, let's talk about how you started your practice. Did you start a practice in San Jose and yeah. then yeah, um, there? I, Pretty typical, right? I, I graduated in 2003, knew nothing <laughs> about chiropractic uh, business, if you will. Um, they attempted to teach us that in the program. And l listen, I, I understand their goal was to be able to make us proficient chiropractic physicians. Right. Um, so I, I was confident in my hands. I was confident in my diagnostic ability. Um, but I wasn't very confident in my ability to acquire a patient. So I started my practice as an associate under Dr. Andre Chevalier out of Santa Clara, California, just near the college. And this guy was, was the shit when it comes to chiropractic business. He was very dialed into the sports community. He started a clinic called Team Clinic and I was fortunate enough to work with him for several years and uh, once I felt I had the, um, 
the knowledge that I needed, uh, I moved on, as many associates do. And uh, I'm grateful uh, in my time working with him to be able to give me the framework of how to develop your own business. Uh, because even though you altruistically want to help people, you need to get them into your facility as well. So having that knowledge that was, um, that was provided by him was really huge. Uh, then I went into private practice in a town called Los Gatos, California, which is in the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains, which was just an ideal place to start a practice where I wanted to be a cash practitioner. I, I did not want to treat the insurance companies. I wanted to treat the patient. And this place was, location-wise, was ideal for me to be able to do such. Um, so I started a practice there, a, a practice called Symmetry Sports Injury. And uh, I was there for uh, 12 years uh, until I moved out here to Denver, Colorado. Okay, and what made you decide to move to Denver? A couple things. I had a beautiful baby girl, and um, those that know the Bay Area of California, it's... Um, it's an expensive place to live, and along with it being expensive, the school systems weren't at the level that I wanted them to be for my for my daughter. So my wife and I made a decision to to move out here. We had, had uh, discussed the opportunity before we had children, uh, and this just sparked the conversation more so. And we found that this area was one affordable. Uh, uh, in respect to cost of living as well as school systems were probably the best in the country. So we made the decision to move out more so due to family. My wife started a PhD program at CU, so she's in the um, final year, if you will, of the neurophysiology uh, degree program at CU working under Roger Anoka. Uh, Roger Anoka is, is the guy that coined the term neuromechanics, which is something that I think we're going to talk about. Right. today uh, and it just it was a an opportunity that she couldn't pass up and so she's now deep into that program of studying how we can affect um, the body neurophysiologically and it really lends well into my philosophy of how we can make changes to the to the human body so those are the two main reasons uh, school systems cost of living and then having the opportunity to, to have my wife complete her PhD, which is something that she's wanted to do her whole life. Uh, and then the beauty of this is that it allowed me to meet some uh, people, uh, Shane Miller, uh, Ron Spallone, Jim Hoven, Chris Courtney, my partners of this facility, uh, Project Move, which uh, we c collectively wanted to build a place like this uh, that incorporated a clinical team along with a sports performance team that communicated to each other um, and I couldn't do that in the Bay Area because of the cost and so we built a, a, a gigantic facility here in in Denver Colorado uh, because we could right. and so those are the main reasons why I made the move out here that's fantastic yeah um, so let's uh, describe your current business practice at Project Move so um, let's start with just you and then we can work on to everybody that you work with. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, like, what does a typical day for you look like when you're <laughs> seeing people? A typical day for me is pretty eclectic because uh, I wear several different hats. Um, I'm a business owner, so there's several days of the week, and I typically choose a couple of days a week. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are days that I spend here and uh, work on the systems that we, we're putting into place. And what I mean by that is that what I've learned through um, through failure, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more in depth, but what I've learned through the three years of experience of building Project Move is that um, consistency, systems, uh, communication, those are really important uh, components of a business. And these are things that, you know, we had the vision of what we wanted Project Move to look like, but we didn't have the systems in place. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time with right now is kind of developing systems as simple as what does it look like and feel like to, to have someone walk into this facility? What should the experience look like and feel like and what should it smell like even? Um, my, my, my colleagues will laugh about that because I'm very particular of, 
of how the place presents itself, right? right? So if you don't have those systems in place, then quite often your vision will start to dwindle right. because you can only live so long on vision. Right. Um, so that's really part of my week is, is developing systems, getting consistency in our message and our brand. So that's part of my week. The other part of my week is working with our clinical team here. Um, because I wear several different hats, I don't practice as much as I used to. Um, I used to be a full-time practitioner, now I'm a part-time practitioner. And But what I've been able to do is, is assemble a team of very smart people, probably smarter than I am, um, and, and most likely smarter than I am. And that's why I collected them, because they're just brilliant movement minds right. that are helping people. So we have a physical therapist and Missy Albrecht. We have uh, Chris Nissler, who's a... a the best way I can put him is a uh, he's a, a movement mechanic, meaning that uh, he looks at someone using uh, in the lens of uh, muscle activation technique, MAT, uh, that he's been trained under to be able to dissect someone and figure out what they need in respect to manual care as well as corrective exercise uh, strategies. So I have these two people uh, that really spend most of their time in the clinical area of Project MOVE. Uh, I have another uh, colleague in Dr. Stu Curry who owns a orthotic lab on site as well as a, as a practicing chiropractor. So I have another chiropractor that I could work from. So those are my clinical team members that uh, I get to work with on a daily basis to be able to make sure that our athletes and members that are part of the Project Move fitness department uh, have access to the clinical team on a daily basis. Um, and lastly, uh, my week looks like uh, putting together the um, educational systems that we have with Rock Tape. So, Rock Tape is a, a kinesiology tape company out of Northern California that I got lucky enough to be um, partner, that I was lucky enough to partner with in 2009, 10, I believe it was, uh, just by luck, and I can explain that to you if you like. But um, uh, I now am their acting medical director for the company. I put together all of our education that we deliver around the world even. Um, and so most of my week is spending uh, in development of our education, uh, management of our education team, which includes 25 or more instructors that we have in the U.S., well over 100 around the world. So that takes up you know, the majority of my week because that's another business that I'm part of. Uh, but Project Move is my baby, and uh, and I put in as much time as I can to develop systems and communication between our clinical and sports performance teams. Yeah, so let's uh, get your background just for a little bit on Rock Tape and how yeah. you got involved with that. Yeah, uh, it was ch by chance. Uh, I wish I had a great story. Uh, the the founder, Greg Vanendry, showed up at my door uh, from a referral from another um therapist in the area and he and at that time he had developed this tape this uh, brand of tape what's called rock tape which is part of a category of tape called kinesiology tape which is in essence elastic therapeutic tape and it's been around that this form of tape has been around for well over 35 years probably closer to 40 years now uh, but just not really well recognized here in the western world because it's mostly been in, in Asia um, so he came with this brand of tape that I had been using because I've been a kinesio tape practitioner for probably well over five or six years prior to him presenting to me. And um, he said, I have this, this, this tape. Uh, I think it's better than what's, what's available and uh, I'd like your opinion on it. So at that time, I was having difficulty with, with kinesio tape, this brand, another brand of tape, in its adhesion. It wasn't sticking to my athletes. And I work with crossfitters, I work with endurance athletes, uh, I work with people that move a lot, right? So what they were reporting to me was that the tape was helpful, but it just didn't last. So I started getting, I started losing confidence in, in, the, in the tape. And so Greg really presented himself at the right time, or Rock Tape presented itself at the right time, because I was looking for an answer to a problem, and he had solved it. Um, right. So I started using the tape, I started noticing that it stuck really well. And it had a different elasticity to it. So when it comes to elastic therapeutic tape, the amount of nylon that they put in the tape gives it a, 
a recoiling effect. Right. And this recoiling effect, uh, as you may know, since you've been trained in it, it, it has the ability to create a lifting effect on the skin, creating space underneath the subdermal area, which provides for many different physiological changes. So I noticed those two things, that the tape felt different because of the elasticity and it stuck better, so three to five days without fail with my athletes. Right. So I called him back in and I go, I have an idea in taping that I want to share with you uh, that I've, I've been working on for several years, which was getting away from taping the muscle, which we've been trained in, and really thinking about taping the movement. And what that means is that I'm using tape as an as a, as a external cue to be able to change someone's movement capacity. So right. if they move incorrectly, I could use tape just like we do with our hands to be able to cue movement better. Um, so it's more of a neurological cue than a mechanical cue that I've been trained in, that you've been trained in, I'm sure. Um, so it just, it, all these things came at the right time. Uh, Greg presented with a new product that really made a difference. I brought to the table a new model of, of, a, of approach in using this tape, and we, we partnered in, in late 2009-10 uh, together and we've been together ever since. We've been doing this for seven or eight years now. Uh, I'm him and I are leaving to go to Dubai in in two weeks to to launch a new partner in the Middle East, and it just blows me away. Yeah. If, you, if you think about this, we're talking about tape right. that we're we're I'm I'm traveling the world, and I've been lucky enough to have been all over the world to talk to really smart therapist around the world of how to use tape. Yeah. And I think this is just fascinating to me. I'm so fortunate, to be honest. Right. right. Yeah. And so um, when did you start teaching? Right away. Uh, Greg and I uh, band together. I developed a the movement-based uh, theory, which at that time we called the power taping technique. Now it's called the functional movement techniques, the FMT system. Um, but we started teaching that in 2010. Um, uh, we probably had one or two classes that year in 2010, and it wasn't until we partnered with a woman named Allison Evans, who is now our director of, my gosh, she's more than just the director of education, she directs us, period, um, and she'll laugh about that, but uh, she has taken us from two courses a year to this year uh, scheduled to have 500 courses a year in the U.S. alone. So uh, we teach a lot. And right. I don't teach all of those. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have 25 uh, brilliant uh, uh, instructors to work with. And so we, within the 25 of us, deliver 500 courses a year, which is awesome. That is, yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> substantial volume. It is, it is, yeah. Um, so let's move on a little bit. And I'd like to know um, like what you're studying right now, basically. So... Just from my limited experience, there's just a vast amount of knowledge out there. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in what people have been, you know, doing. Like, you've been in business for 15, 15 years, years, is that yeah. right? Yeah. And so, like, what do you continue to study? What's interesting you at the moment? It, it's, it's a good question because it's changed. Uh, it's changed from, uh, I wanted to know what was I affecting mechanically? And what I mean by that is that when I put my hands on someone, when I used an instrument on someone, even when I put tape on someone at that time, I was, I was curious of what are we doing mechanically to the tissues below? Uh, and I actually disregarded the skin altogether. I really didn't consider the skin a tissue that I was really manipulating because it just wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I wanted to know what, we, what were we doing to the muscle? Because most people come and said, I've strained my rotator cuff, uh, I've sprained my ankle and you know the ligaments in my ankle. Like Mechanically, I wanted to know what I was doing to those tissues. So the first five to seven years of my career, uh, you know, uh, dovetailing on what I learned in my education, which was, what are we doing mechanically? Um, so I studied a lot about uh, the uh, biomechanical changes that occurred when I put my hands on someone, when I adjusted their SI joint or their upper cervical or their shoulder. So that's what I really studied a lot of. Um, I was a mechanic performing uh, therapies on my patients. So the, the trainings that I took were more mechanically inclined. And so this is not um, 
a, a negative uh, on these trainings because they've evolved just as much as I've evolved, but ART, Active Release Technique, was one of the first camps that I belonged to, and right. I still belong to, but uh, but but I, I, I do it differently than I used to, right? Where I'm a bigger guy, I'm 225, 230 on a bad day, and I'm a bigger guy, so everyone came to me saying, Capo, which is my nickname, can probably get at it. If you didn't get the depth of penetration on this technique from someone else, go see Steve because he could probably get at it because they just looked at my size and they said he can muscle through it. And that's really what I was known for. I was, I was the one that you know, made my patients you know, grunt and swear and scream in my office, but they left you know, showing you know, improvements. So yeah. that's where I became known for was the mechanic that was able to break down the adhesion, if you will, of whatever they were dealing with. So that was my first quarter of my, my career. The second quarter, I started asking different questions, saying, well, um, do I need, one, my body was starting to fail me, so that's something that we should recognize. Any manual therapist that's listening to this type of podcast should understand that our bodies can only take so much load, so us as practitioners. So I started noticing thumb and elbow and shoulder and other aches and pains associated with my daily you know, routine. So I started researching you know, what are ways that I can manage my body or change the techniques. So I started looking into the science of, of, of how we affect the brain. And this rabbit hole, as you and I discussed offline, uh, has now taken me you know, an extra 10 years to really start to figure out. And I, I think I'm only on the, the cusp of understanding, which, which is really makes sense when we're talking about the nervous system, is that I'm starting to recognize that less is more. And so I'm studying um, community, pain science communities. So the, the, the Neuro Orthopedic Institute, as a good example, has been a great uh, community to learn from in respect to how do we make a change to the nervous system, not the structure, but the nervous system, the brain in particular, to be able to make observable changes that we see in the, in the human body. So when we say that we have to put pressure in to get a trigger point to release, is that a mechanical action or is it a neurological, you know, mediated action? And we're starting to lean, I'm starting to lean more on this idea of how do we modulate tone in the muscular system uh, by affecting the brain from yeah. the outside in. So where I'm Leaning, what I'm leaning on now is the Neuroorthopedic Institute. I'm leaning on the pain science community as a whole, and there's multiple different camps in that pain science community. Uh, I'm looking at uh, uh, how we communicate with someone, so not even touching them, but how we communicate with someone, someone to be able to get them to buy into the notion that their pain isn't coming from their tissue, but it's probably an interpretation that's coming from their brain. Uh, those type, kind of discussions are giving me equal, if not better, outcomes than me having to drop an elbow into their back to be able to get the same effect. Right. Uh, you see what I mean by that? But yes, it, it's just by changing the approach, by using the nervous system as my guide versus having to think of what mechanically am I distorting. So pain science is where I'm living right now. And that's not to say that I don't use my hands any longer and don't use manual therapies, but I'm now interlacing communication and what I say to be able to encourage optimal changes in what I do with my hands and whatever tool, including tape. Right. Um, so that's really where, where I've changed. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole for sure. <laughs> it uh, sure is. And so what courses have you taken since you've well, gosh, uh, I've taken a lot, um, but let's say the, in the last few years I've, I've been diving into uh, DNS, the Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization, and I've been diving into um, uh, other movement-based techniques, including uh, Feldenkrais, uh, which is a movement therapy, which I can talk a little bit more on, as well as um, the Andreo Spina's work, which is a, a chiropractor out of uh, Canada, it's developed a program that uh, I've been intrigued about, which is the functional range conditioning, which is the FRC system, which is the only one I've taken so far, which really works well in my medium of movement 
therapy where I could use um, what he calls um, CARS, which are you know segmented mobility exercises while we're feeding the stability system. Uh, it's probably not the, uh, the best explanation of how the system works, but it's ultimately putting significance around these mobility uh, tactics that we're trying to accomplish with our patients. Right. If I'm trying to improve someone's shoulder mobility, it's much more complex than just improving the range of motion of that specific segment. We have to take into account how the brain perceives this range of motion. Does it perceive a threat? Uh, how do we control that perception through creating stability somewhere else? So by creating stability in the rest of the, the body, we can optimally improve the range of motion of that segment that we're working on. I think that's pretty fascinating because before I would say, I'm just going to thrash that shoulder with my hands and tools and, and really force that, that new range of motion through manual therapy versus his technique is saying that you can be a lot more fine-tuned in your approach and create this new change in mobility by creating stability somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I think that's revolutionary. Yeah. DNS uh, has provided me with uh, the ability to progress and regress someone through the developmental kinesiology idea. Uh, maybe a better way of explaining that is that we've all learned to move through uh, developmental patterns right. uh, from infancy to our adulthood. And I think this system has really allowed me to better understand what these patterns are and treat the pattern, not the muscles. Right. So if I see someone that can't squat, which is very common, right, then the person says, well, if I can't do this, what are my options? And your options are you would regress them developmentally to the pattern just below the squat. So we could regress them to a tall kneeling position or a quadruped position. And, and, and DNS has provided me that framework. Before, I was always somewhat challenged saying, gosh, you're right. Like, do I just... The only way that to regress someone in a squat, in my opinion, at that time, with the lack of education that I had, was to decrease the load or not do that movement, right? right. So that left the person at a loss and saying, well, what, what do I do next? And I didn't right. have those answers until I started studying DNS, and DNS provided me the progression of a squat pattern and a regression of a squat pattern, and that allowed me a lot of leniency to figure out where do I need to move someone to or from. Right. Yeah. So even you can even go as far as like the deadlift pattern. Yeah. Right. So like if you can't do bear crawl properly, then you probably shouldn't be deadlifting. Right? Agreed. So agreed. And so that helps people right. and, and, and the practitioner. I'm not going to say just the the end user, which is the patient or athlete, is that they say, well, if I can't do this, what can I do? And this is what DNS has provided me is that framework to figure out, well, here's where you you need to show ownership of this movement, like what you said, the bear crawl, before you move into a, a loaded hinge pattern like a deadlift. And that really changed the way I look at people now. I don't look at the muscle joint uh, as much as I look at the pattern now. And if you can show a pattern, then I can progress or regress them accordingly. Right. And so um, I've seen a lot of really bad bear crawl videos coming out of a lot of different CrossFit gyms. So do you incorporate that? into your CrossFit gym at all, like as a part of the warm-ups? Yeah, But yeah. to like make sure that everybody's doing it slow and controlled and it's not a race and it's not CrossFit uh -huh. at that point, you know yeah. what I mean? So You've you got it right. It's not CrossFit at that point. Having a component of our facility, which is CrossFit, uh, we had a, um, a roundtable uh, discussion right before we started this, this facility, Project MOVE. Project MOVE is more than just CrossFit, it, it's a movement facility, and so CrossFit is one of those movement platforms that we, that we adopt. But what we've done is that we want to not necessarily redefine, but, but to, to tweak CrossFit to allow people to understand that before you move to a, uh, a snatch pattern, which is very complex and requires a lot of integrity, that we want to make sure that you have all of the pieces in place, and that includes all of the, the developmental um, patterns in place before you accomplish something as advanced as a, as a snatch. Right. So within our movement preparation, which we call our, um, our MOBSTA, MOBSTA is our mobility stability uh, section of our training is that everyone has taken through this developmental strategy of 
how to breathe. Let's let's start all the way down to right. developmental stage one. Is can you breathe optimally? Can you own that breath as you start to progress yourself through different phases of the developmental sequence? Uh, that's part of our MOBSTA, our mobility stability movement preparation phase of our training. So uh, if the question is, do we incorporate that into our training? Absolutely. And do we incorporate multi-planar um, uh, uh, tools into all of our training? Absolutely. Because I don't want you to be the sagittal plane, you know, giant, meaning right. that all you own is the sagittal plane. And if you spill over into any of the other two, you're going to be injured in, in our clinic. That's not the, the goal. The goal is, is to have capacity, integrity, and control of all three planes and each phase of the developmental sequence. Right. So DNS has fed me that, that knowledge and that I apply that to, into our training. Right. So we're starting to incorporate that a lot into our uh, CrossFit gym. Great. And it's, you know, part of it is, and that's part of why... I became disenchanted with CrossFit because oh. I've been doing it since 2010. Yeah. And so, you know, the more I realized that, and this is just my explanation, so CrossFit gets you really fit, but then you lose athleticism, mm, which is where before um, 2010, the CrossFit was to supplement your sport. If you want to be a better rock climber, if you want to be a better runner, if you mm -hmm. want to be a better cyclist, whatever, do CrossFit, it helps you. But then, 2011, CrossFit Games are on ESPN. And now, that is what CrossFit is. And so, now, like, people are, like, coming in and doing Rich Froning's programming right off the street mm -hmm. when they probably don't they need to be doing that. Right. And so, I've also um, had a number of clients as a massage therapist that are coming from CrossFit because they got injured playing volleyball. <laughs> because they no longer have those lateral movement patterns, they're no longer multiplanar movement patterns. They, yep. They're they're just linear, straight up and down. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why um, I've kind of started to go a different route with my training, and then trying to kind of incorporate that into you know the CrossFit model that's yeah. at the gym that I'm at right now. Great. So it's really, really refreshing to talk to you about that and see that somebody else is doing that also and realizing that there is flaws in CrossFit's just go, 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 yeah. you know, because like the stability patterns and a lot of the multi-planar movement patterns you can't really do for time or for load, you need to do for quality. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, against their protocols initially. Yeah. And and you said it yourself initially, like I, I, I don't think the intent of the CrossFit community Let's start off with Greg Glassman and right. developing this was the intent was not to to form a bunch of rich fronings. Right. Uh, that would be great, but ultimately is to provide a platform of movement re-education really is what he was trying to do is saying walking on a treadmill, going to the global gym and lifting a weight in 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 a in a consistent pattern that does not challenge the body to to change. It wasn't working, and it's obvious that our that our the global burden of disease is 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 really identifying that we're not making a dent in in obesity. We're not making right. a dent in cardiovascular disease. Um, low back pain <clears throat> is a good example of that. Is that it's only getting worse. Right. So what we're doing currently, and what he evaluated, what we were doing at that time wasn't su successful. But as you said, as 2011, we started to now. Uh, showcase CrossFit on ESPN and the media is getting a hold of it now it's starting to bring this new um, not new mantra but a new uh, uh, way of delivering CrossFit to be able to meet that standard right. which is now somewhat changed uh, from what the original was so it's 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 places like yours and places like Project Move that are really attempting to to maintain the initial intent and, and really take advantage of the community, of which I call and which has been well communicated, the Kohler effect of, of getting people to band together to push someone outside of their comfort zone. Right. I love those components of CrossFit. Right. I love yeah. what we've developed. And I give Shane Miller credit for this as our head coach here, is develop a community that push each other outside of their, their comfort zone. Um, and that is what I love about CrossFit. What we need to do as clinicians, uh, and that's what we, why we have a clinical team here, is to make sure that we in, insert 
the, the, the necessary movement patterns that are required to be able to accomplish some of the tasks that, that a CrossFit community will do. Right. Uh, if you don't, we'll just see it degrade over time, in my opinion, to where everyone will assume that you just get injured um, automatically by joining a CrossFit gym. Right. And I don't think that's always the case, if, right. if done correctly. And so I think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of good things about CrossFit, like you said. It, it um, has the community aspect of it. Yeah. But it also teaches you how to work out. Mm -hmm. Because like you mentioned, the Globo Gym, it's really no, your body doesn't move like that. There's no muscles that are moving isolation. Right. And so you can work out at a CrossFit gym for like two weeks, go on a trip, and then go to a normal gym and just be like, what are these people doing in here? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then once you see what natural movement is, then everything seems really unnatural in that place. Understood. And so, you know, that's another thing that I really like about CrossFit, and I think that CrossFit's trying, they're seeing that there is an influence from the CrossFit games, and they're kind of trying to go back to the way they used to be. I see that as well. Right, yeah. and which is really uh, comforting because yeah. you don't need to do strength and conditioning in the same day mm -hmm. because the likelihood that you're going to regionals is pretty low. <laughs> the likelihood that you're going to the games is even lower than that. Right. And so, like, you can do a 5 by 5 back squat and be completely wiped out if you do it correctly, yeah. and then that'll be the workout of the day. You don't need to do a Metcon after that. That's right. It's okay. You can. Yeah, and that's, that's hard to convince a lot of people because they're looking for, I want to sweat today, right. not recognizing that the, the workout is built on many other workouts that are going to feed the system accordingly and appropriately. Right. Um, so I'm totally on the same, same platform as what your thought is. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so what, um, are you reading any books right now? I'm reading a crap load of books right now. I'm a, uh, I'm a, a dabbler. <laughs> and a dabbler in books is that I have probably three or four on my nightstand. I have a, a crap load on my Kindle. I'm uh, dumping into Kindle quite a bit lately due to my wife's influence. Uh, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I'm a podcaster. So right. uh, I'm acquiring information in multiple different mediums. And the, the books that I'm reading right now... Uh, the uh, I've been reading this book for probably several years is The Tensional Network of the Human Body. That's okay. uh, edited by uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Schleip. Um, he's a fascial geek just as much as I am. And this book is just packed of just great information about this network of fascia that we've been dissecting out for well over 500 years. And now we're getting a better understanding of how this network helps us move. Um, so that's one that I've, I'm always kind of re reading and rereading to kind of get these concepts that I insert into our education at Rock Tape. Uh, I'm also reading The Body Has a Mind of Its Own. Uh, I've forgotten the author's name, but The Body That Has a Mind of Its Own, I just read again while I was on vacation in Mexico a few weeks ago. And I'm telling you, I think I highlighted the entire damn thing because yeah. every page has just groundbreaking uh, information that's changing my thought process and this is leaning on that discussion of what I think what we're doing mechanically to to the body influencing the brain that gives us the output that we that we notice so it really spends a lot of time in this book talking about how we feed the sensory system that includes the tactile sensation the visual sensation vestibular sensation and blend the sensory information, this is a concept called sensory blending, how we feed the sensory system to communicate with the brain to be able to have the brain make the appropriate motor output. So if I want my hamstring to downregulate to improve my ability to touch my toes, it doesn't mean that we have to just find the perfect hamstring stretch, mechanical stretch that's going to elongate that muscle. What the evidence is starting to indicate is that how do we feed the brain to give it more confidence to let the hamstring relax right. to allow you to touch your toes. Right. See, there's a difference there is that one is lengthen the muscle locally, that's the reductionist view, versus the global view is saying how do we convince the brain to give you the length that, that it deems um, uh, reasonable or, or appropriate. Right. Um, so this book, The Body that, that Has a Mind of Its Own, really is giving me 
plenty of ammunition and, and resources to now dive in further into the rabbit hole to figure out how do I better feed the brain? Right. And my, my sense is that the largest organ of the body is one that we are not feeding enough, and that includes the, the skin. Right. And so this is where the tape component comes in, and that's what I spent a lot of time researching, is how do I better affect the skin to communicate with the brain? So right. that, that book has been just game changer for me. And there's a couple of other ones that I might want to share. One is a business one, so me learning about how to how to make this business viable so I can deliver the message that I want, which is movement matters. Um, the book called Traction has changed the way that I conduct business. Uh, it's given me systems to follow. It's given me um, how to brand something. What are my core values? Um, what's my mission statement, which is used uh, a lot in business, but a lot of people don't really understand how to develop a mission statement. So Traction authored by a guy named Gino Wickman, has just changed the way that I look at business uh, and kind of create some structure around how I conduct my business. Um, so those are the ones that I'm reading right now. And are those the ones that you would recommend, or is there any oh, other books that you would, would recommend? I, would I ever. Um, the body, if, you're a, if you're a body geek, um, read the body. The, the body, gosh, what was it? The brain has a body. No, the body has a brain... What the hell was the name of that, that book that I just said? <laughs> the body has a brain of its own. Right. Um, so look up that one if you're interested in how you can influence the brain to make some changes. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. Being a fascial geek as I am, I, I just can't get enough of, of the fascial science. And so the tensional network of the human body is just an encyclopedia for fascial geeks. Right. And then if you're a business owner and you want to better refine your business skills, uh, Traction has been one of the best ones I've read. So I would recommend all three of them. Um, so what advice would you give to somebody that's starting out a business? Uh, be prepared to fail and, uh, and accept that failure is not always negative. Right. Uh, if I can reframe that, is that I've learned through multiple failures in the three years of building Project Move that um, that the experience that I've acquired from those fa failures is now making me more successful now. And if I if I if I didn't realize that I could look at these failures and now figure out new strategies and better ways of accomplishing it. Uh, then I would just have just failed. So fail, failing is not the answer, but, but the act of failing allows you to grow. And that's really, really one of the best advice, the best advice I can give a new business owner or even someone that's uh, a, a movement therapist, a clinical movement specialist, if you will, um, that to understand that you have to have a business hat as well as a clinical hat. And the business is where most people fail. And the reason for that is that a lot of them don't look at those failures and figure out new strategies to make themselves more successful. So learning how to fail is probably the best advice that I can give. And so if you were to give advice to your 25-year-old self, would that be what advice you'd give yourself? Yeah, being, be more, be more um, forgiving uh, of those failures. So what I, what I was, and I'm really hard on myself as well as my partners and and I recognize that, and is that I, I initially would consider that these failures were just a, a sign that it just wasn't made to be. Right. And what really should have been the viewpoint is that these failures should be things that we recognize, we communicate, and we solve. So through the traction, and this is not to sound cheesy into like looking, you know, spewing out what a book will tell you, but it ultimately gave me the, the skill of the IDS, the identify the the issues and the issues might be you know what we failed upon in the previous quarter and then discuss so that's where communication comes in so being able to communicate with uh, your partners communicate amongst yourself and to self-evaluate as well as your your um, your immediate source which would be your family so my communication with my spouse was poor and so now learning from those experiences that communication is integral to be able to identify the issues, 
discuss or communicate those issues and then solve those issues will will typically get you where you need to be so in my 25 year old self i would say steve uh, recognize you're going to fail but use that as a matter of how to improve yourself moving forward not as a a sign that you shouldn't continue on yeah. okay and then what's your um movement practice my movement practice is, is as eclectic as uh, my philosophy in, in uh, my, myself as a clinician, is that uh, I initially was a strength athlete, so I could lift heavy things and do that well. And then um, as I've progressed in age, is <laughs> probably the best way to put it, I've, I've become a little bit more eclectic in what I've now challenged myself. So as a strength athlete, I wanted to see, could I challenge myself as an endurance athlete? So when I turned 30-something, something, 32, 33, I decided that I wanted to do an Ironman uh, triathlon, which uh, if you ever asked me to run, it would be to get across the street or away from a, you know, a rabid dog. I would not run. Right. But I've challenged myself to say, can I condition my body and my brain to be able to to finish an Ironman, which I was able to accomplish. And every other year, I'll focus my attention on an endurance-based you know, practice. So that's what this year is. I'm doing a half Ironman up in Boulder. And then the years in between, I experiment with a lot of different things to, to condition my body. And I've been heavily involved in Indian club swinging lately. So I've been doing a lot of Indian club, mace bell work, um, uh, that type of training to you know challenge myself a little bit more dynamically than lifting a bar overhead. So that's really what I do. One year is endurance, uh, challenge myself through off-road or road you know, training programs and, and uh, events, and then the other year I'll just you know uh, attach a lot of eclectic lifting, kettlebells, Indian clubs, mace bells, um, more dynamic conditioning programs. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we needed. Thank you, all sir. Right. My pleasure. Thank you.